we are going to um, finish up our series this morning on the book of Jonah. And uh, it really starts with, it really, it really ends with a bang, I think. And, but it also ends in a way that a lot of people tend to overlook. If we're, you know, so much of the time that we read through that we, that we talk about these stories in the Old Testament especially, we're kind of talking about things where, like, we, we talk about them all at once, right? It's like a, you get a shortened version of the story. And when that happens, we tend to only focus on certain parts of the story. And we also tend to think that it, it ends when it doesn't. And many think of the ending of Jonah as either him getting swallowed by and spit up by a fish. They think of it as he, the Ninevites themselves, that he goes to kind of, evangelized too, that they, you know, repent and turn their ways. That's pretty dramatic, which is what we talked about last week. But uh, very rarely does it actually end with the end, which is chapter four of Jonah. Um, That's a little bit more confusing and a little bit more strange to people. And so you just kind of like don't think about that part. And we're going to spend our morning looking at that part because of how important it is. So I'm going to read through Jonah chapter four. We'll put it up on the screen for you. And then we'll talk about it. And just to kind of like make sense of this, if you weren't here last week, um, because this starts like, it seems almost like it starts mid-thought, chapter 4. And so what you have to know about chapter 3, what happened, is that Jonah went to the Ninevites. He proclaimed um, that if they turned to God, um, if they repented of their evil ways, that they would be spared judgment and wrath of God. And so it says that the people did, that the people of Nineveh did uh, repent of these evil ways and Uh, The result of that is they were spared God's judgment. So you kind of have to know that just happened. And that's why it starts with the word but here. It's like uh, already responding to that, even though it's the beginning of a new chapter. So we'll start there. Chapter 4 of Jonah. We'll put it up on the screen for you. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should not I pity Nineveh, the great, that great city in which there are more than 12, 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's the end. So weird, right? Like, one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible, if you ask me. If someone's ever like, what's one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible? Be like, you may not think this, but it's Jonah 4. I encourage you to read that. Because it starts with the word but, which is weird. And um, there's no way it would make it like, they, I mean, they just went through Jonah in the bridge. And I can't even imagine what it was like to, to just start a sentence with the word but and try to get them to stay serious for a while. It ends with uh, this question, and also much cattle, right? Um, okay, great, fine. God likes cattle, I guess. You know, there's kind of a weird emphasis on, like, cattle in this, uh, in this story that we forget about a lot of times. Um, we get the most uh, dramatic, like, uh, person, the biggest baby, it seems, in the world, in Jonah, here in this chapter. And then we get, like... Is this God having just the greatest sense of humor? Is this God being kind of mean? Like, what, what is it that's happening here? We're reading about a worm and about, like, a gourd and all kinds of weird stuff happening. Like, this is just one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible, right? Um, you know, I don't know if you have been in a situation in life where you thought you understood something, but then you came to realize that the only way, that, that actually experiencing that thing um, was what it took for you to really understand it. Like you think you get something, but then God or the circumstances of life or however you see it playing out cause you to have to experience that thing. Like you, you know the idea of it, but then you have to live it, right? And living it makes it all the more real and it makes you realize that maybe you didn't fully understand that thing to begin with. This is like a huge part of life. Being able to like empathize with other people uh, without knowing what they're going through because we've experienced it is hard. We tend to empathize with those that we've been through. They've been, we've been through the things that they're going through. And because we put ourselves in their place, we go, I know what that's like. I know how that feels. And it's easier for me to relate to them. It's really hard for us. It's really hard for us to like put ourselves in the position of people who um, we're going through totally different things. Uh, we just aren't good at that. We think we are. We think it's simple that we can look at someone in their situation and go, I know what that's like. Or that, that must be difficult or easy or whatever. But if we haven't gone through it ourselves, it turns out the way we work as people is it just is really hard for us to actually understand. I was uh, looking, um, I was kind of looking up something online um, this morning, actually, thinking about this, and I discovered there's a, there's a company out there called NASCO Healthcare, and for only $1,000, you can go to their website, um, and you can buy something called the Empathy Belly Pregnancy Simulator. And um, it is the adult version, and it comes with the, uh, which I love that. That's like, is there a kid version? Uh, but um, it comes with an expectant father slash adult DVD, which is good. So, like, um, this thing for $1,000 comes with um, weights, 
a belt that grabs and like like grabs around certain parts of your midsection and you tighten it uh, um, like inflatable bladders that actually put pressure on certain parts of your body that make um, make it uncomfortable and uh, the whole point of this thing this this thousand dollar empathy pregnancy belly is to give fathers expectant fathers um, a way of understanding what it's like to be pregnant why would anyone think it was important enough to spend $1,000 on this? Uh, if you've been pregnant and married, you maybe know the answer to that question. Uh, it, it says this thing, I was reading about it, it says that um, there's over 20 symptoms and effects of pregnancy that are felt by this, including awkwardness in body movements, um, change in personal self-image, uh, increased body temperature and perspiration, uh, mild fetal kicking movements is what it says. It does that. Uh, postural changes of back and shift in the center of your gravity. I didn't know that happened. Um, uh, pregnant profile. Um, and then it elaborates on that, and I won't. Um, pressure on the bladder and other internal organs. Shortness of breath and weight gain of 30 to 33 pounds. It says effects are stimulated through the use of a rib belt and strategic positioning of various weighted components, and then goes on and on and on. Um, I didn't even know about all of those things until I just read that description of that, right? Um, there, is a, there is something completely different about actually experiencing in any way what even this person that you're married to is going through. And the reason that those things exist is because uh, for some people, I think, I guess they need to really experience that because they have very little empathy in that way. What we read about in Jonah chapter 4 is so weird and so specific. But what we're reading about ultimately is we're reading about a situation where God has decided Jonah needs to experience some things that he thinks he understands. And he needs to experience them in such specific ways that it seems weird. But that's because God decides that basically the prescription that he's going to write for Jonah like has to, has to perfectly meet where he as an individual is at. God's going to do some things that are so specific. And the reason he's going to do them is because Jonah just doesn't get it yet. He's, God is, Jonah is a prophet. And as we've talked about over weeks and weeks, he's a really lousy prophet. Uh, he's not very good at his job. He isn't motivated by the right things. Because he hasn't experienced the kinds of things that he needs to experience in order to really be the person that he's supposed to be as a prophet. So God decides that he's going to bring him through an experience. He's going to use him to reach his enemies. And that by doing that, God's going to show Jonah again and again and again some things so that when he comes out of this, he's a changed person. Uh, we read in the beginning of this, um, his response to the Ninevites repenting. We read that even though he got, like, I have, I have a child who um, is 
sort of stubborn, I'll say that. And, um, and, and as a stubborn kid, um, one of the things that I've discovered is that um, there, I'm going to try to be gender neutral in how I say this because it's going to be hard because if I let out a pronoun at some point, then you'll know which kid because I only have two and one's a boy and one's a girl. Um, so um, this child um, will fight us on something and then this child will eventually be forced to give in. And when this happens, um, one of the things that has surprised us is that we'll be like, good job, you did it. And that's when this child will um, completely break down and fall apart. Like they'll get angry or they'll get even more sad and they'll throw a whole second sort of tantrum. Why? Because they lost. Like in a sense, they got what they wanted, which was they didn't get in trouble. They got some kind of a reward, but they still didn't really get what they wanted. And so because of that, they're miserable. Here we have a prophet, Jonah, who gets what he wants. He is like the greatest prophet of all time because he actually proclaims the truth of God to the enemies of God's people. No prophet has done that before. They've only been, uh, you know, like preaching to the choir, so to speak, to the Israelites. And, and not only does he preach to these people, but they repent. I mean, you could look at him as like the greatest of all time. He could come back and be famous, right? Like this is the guy who turned the hearts of the enemies and God used him for that. He gets exactly what anybody would want. He is successful. So what's his response to success? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord... Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He says, because I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relentless from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? The first thing that we read about here that God needs for Jonah to experience, that he wants for Jonah to experience, is anger. Jonah needed to experience anger, and the reason for that is because his anger is caused by something that God wants to reveal in his heart. Jonah has got an idol. He has got a thing that is God in his life that isn't actually God. He's got something that's taken the place of God in his life. And that thing, anytime that happens for any of us, we create an idol. We don't bow down to little statues anymore, uh, but we create idols nonetheless. In fact, God created us to worship him, and so we're kind of prone to do that. We're, we're created to function that way. And when we don't worship him, something else gets uh, more important than God in our lives, that thing becomes an idol. Jonah had an idol. Jonah's idol was his love for his country. His, 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 uh, his love for the Israelite people and the Israelite cause. But what we read about here is a guy, not somebody who loves God so much or loves other people so much, but as a guy who loves the cause of Israel so much. We, we talked about that in the first week. He's a patriot. 
when, when one of their leaders wanted to expand their borders and their territory in a way that wasn't good, he ultimately was like in favor of that, which tells us that he's somebody who loves the cause of Israel even at the cost of being holy or being righteous and the people doing what God wants them to do. This is why when God calls him to minister to his enemies, he sees it as a bad thing. He's supposed to want people to know about God. He's supposed to want people to repent. He's supposed to want them to experience the grace of God. But that's not how he feels. Why? Because there's something in his life that is more important than even that. His idol causes anger in him. And God needed for him or wanted for him to experience that anger And that's exactly what he's doing right now. He's so angry about what happened. It tells us that in the first verse here. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And what does it say? It says, and he was angry. He was mad that that these people received the mercy of God because they didn't deserve the mercy of God. Why don't they deserve it? Because they're not as good as us, the Israelites. What does that mean? It means we deserve the mercy of God, the Israelites. It means that we're the right kind of people. I'm the right kind of person. My family and my friends are the right ones, which means it's not actually a matter of mercy in the end anyway. What it leads him to, though, is anger. And so this anger is, is so, it grows and it's so strong and it's so powerful. It's so consuming that it makes him want to die. He's so angry that he wants to die. Anger ultimately is rooted in the concept of justice. Anger is rooted in the word should or the word ought. If you ever get angry at someone because they cut you off, you're angry because people shouldn't do that to me, right? That's not the rules for the world we live in, or at least that shouldn't be, right? Uh, Something happens, you experience something, and you get angry because you think it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be this other way. That's what ultimately anger is rooted in, which, which brings up the question of, uh, I think in Jonah's mind, like, isn't God supposed to be a just God? Isn't he supposed to care about the evil receiving punishment? Isn't he supposed to care about um, the good people being, uh, being avenged or, or receiving compassion? Isn't that how justice works, that these people have to pay for the things that they've done? This situation should turn out this way, and it's not. I should have this thing, and I don't. My kids should experience this thing, and they aren't. My family should um, have a life that looks like this, and it doesn't. Our country should go in this direction, and it's not. Or my, my, my community should look like this, but it doesn't. Instead, it looks like this. The verb used for Jonah's anger here is the same verb that's used to describe God's anger towards the Ninevites earlier in the story. So so what we know is that what we know that Jonah's anger, which here is clearly wrong, is a perversion of God's anger. And that's important. See, when we're angry, especially as believers, we're like, this is righteous anger, right? Like, if if I'm a Christian 
If I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm mad about something, that means it's like a holy cause. Uh, whether I'm like aware enough to even acknowledge that I feel that way or not, that's usually how we feel. Rather than feeling convicted about that anger, much of the time we feel justified in that anger because I'm a God person. And so that means that my anger is rooted in something good where other people's is rooted in something wrong. We say, my anger word is the same as God's anger word. Jonah's is here, but it's not. It's like a perversion of a thing that is good when it's of God, when it's in God. He's taken something that's sort of originally uh, has a good and right purpose, and he's perverted it, made it into something that's not good, that's sinful, that's wrong. He's saying, I'm God. He's saying, I should be God. Because justice is ultimately God's business. Anger is aimed at God. You know, we're not particularly good at dealing with anger. We're not. People are not good at dealing with anger. I was reading a psychologist talking about anger and how people handle it this last week. And they'll they'll say, pretty much agree, that the overwhelming majority of people, when they encounter anger in their lives, you kind of deal with it in one of two ways. You either protect yourself, and, and really both of these ways is to protect yourself from anger. So when you experience anger in your life, your immediate response, whether you realize it or not, is to protect yourself from it. And the way that you protect yourself from anger is you either suppress it, you either just kind of like shove it down and you ignore that it's there. You might be like, yeah, I do that, right? You might be like, yeah, I know people who do that, right? And, uh, and it's not good. Or either you suppress it or you act out in ways that makes you feel temporarily powerful. They make you feel like you're doing something about this anger. They make you feel like you're responding or reacting in a way that that you need to in this anger. And while these things may appear to be like totally opposite reactions, ultimately those things are a way for us to avoid facing anger, dealing with anger, which is something that we're bad at doing. We're bad at dealing with being angry. God um, allows... Uh, this, these circumstances to happen in such a way that Jonah finds himself, I think it's safe to say, angrier than he's ever been in his whole life. And it is in that moment that God asks him a question. And this question is huge. Do you do well to be this angry? Like, is, it, is this good? Is this, does this feel good, giving into this feeling? Having this way of looking at people and at yourself? Does this feel like it's going to give you life, or does it feel like it's leading towards death for you? We think that anger feels good. Sometimes it does seem to feel good. It's like giving into a drug or something. Anger drives us to action sometimes, so we think it motivates us. We think uh, it makes me get up and do things, and that's what God wants. He wants me to be motivated by this so that I can go make change happen in my life or in the world around me. But anger also allows us to just kind of give up and walk away because that's what some of us do as well. Some of us fight when we're angry. Some of us walk away and give up when we're angry. Some of us just detach and become disconnected the longer we live our lives. And we care less and less and less about things because anger has made us feel that way. But one thing that anger does better than anything else is it reveals what's going on inside of our hearts. 
if we had the ability to actually reflect on what's making us angry, we would realize some things in our hearts that we don't see in any other way. It gives us an opportunity, like, like all real strong emotions do, give us an opportunity to see what's going on inside of us. And like, you know, some of us are sitting here going like, I don't want to see what's going on inside of me. Others are sitting here going like, what? I don't need to see what's going on inside me. There's nothing going on inside of me. I'm a pretty simple person. I'm a pretty basic person. Uh, probably if you're feeling that way or if you're saying that, it just means that you have no idea what's going on inside of you. Um, but the truth is, if you were to read through the Psalms, if you were to look through Scripture, what you would find is you would find these incredibly strong emotions, whether they're good ones or negative ones, positive or negative. And in those strong emotions, what they bring out is what's going on in the heart of people, one way or another. Jonah needed to experience his anger on such a level that it would reveal the idol that was causing it because that's what was at the root of his anger. It showed him that there was something that he loved more than God. Anger's the way that he saw that. If we don't deal with um, the things that cause anger in our lives, it consumes us. It leads to destruction, which is exactly what it does here with Jonah. And that is not good takes over and it robs us of joy, of peace, of hope, of love, of any of those good things that Scripture talks about. And so the first thing that has to happen, we see with Jonah here, is that he, God decides he's going to have to kind of experience this really painful thing. But the reason I wanted to do that is because I want to show him what's leading to it and what's causing it. And the truth is, for I know for me personally, um, you know, I... I, I I can tell you that when I've been willing to look and ask about the cause and the root of things that make me really, really angry, at the end of the day, I have to be willing to say, you know, it isn't really something that person did. It isn't really something that happened in the world over here. It's not really these circumstances that are so objectively terrible. The anger isn't caused by that thing. It's maybe bringing it out in me. There's something going on inside of me. There's something I care about too much. I'm, a, I'm, I'm attached to too much. Or I'm, I'm afraid of losing too much. And because I'm afraid of that, I'm mad. And this is exactly what we see with Jonah. But it gets even weirder because God still wants him to experience some other things. And he's like, I need you to experience these things as the most tangible way possible. Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. How messed up is this, right? They've repented. They're like supposed to be saved. He leaves the city he sits down to see what would become of the city. Well, why would he do that? Because he's like, please, maybe God's still going to smite these people, right? Like, he literally goes and gets a front row seat, hoping that God's going to, like, 
drop whatever, fire from the sky, lightning bolts, giant rocks that land on people. He's probably going like, oh man, I know that God can do some epic biblical things. Uh, Probably wouldn't use the word biblical then, but he would say epic things. And so this is going to be a pretty good show um, if I can just get to a good spot. But it's hot. They live in the desert. And so he he builds a a tent or a dwelling, which is like a temporary thing, um, a booth, they would call it, which is a temporary thing out of branches and stuff that blocks the shade, blocks the sun. Because out in that kind of an environment, like being exposed to the sun is like the worst thing ever. So if you could just get yourself under some shade, uh, you're going to be a lot more comfortable, you're going to be a lot cooler, and you can just sit there and enjoy the show. So messed up. He sits and he's like, I'm so angry, I'm just waiting for God to still smite these people. He's going to realize, hopefully, that they didn't really repent. Maybe even just my tantrum will accomplish something, and God will be like, you know what? What I've learned from this experience is that Jonah's really got things figured out a lot more than me. And so I am going to go ahead and, and kill all 120,000 of these people and even, yeah, the cattle. Um, even though they put sackcloth on and they clearly repented themselves, as we learned last week. So messed up. Jonah goes up and he sits down, clearly hasn't learned his lesson yet of any kind. To see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Okay, I guess. Uh, it's, uh, it's referred to as a gourd. Um, it's uh, in, in other like translations and stuff. And um, basically... This is a type of plant that could grow relatively quickly, but I still think that obviously Scripture tells us that God is the one that did it. Um, This is starting to sound like a fairy tale. It's starting to sound like, um, you know, uh, I mean, how happy is a person because of a plant, right? I think it's safe to say that Jonah's in a pretty raw place right now. So I think it's safe to say he's being a bit dramatic. Um, And so he's kind of got these high highs and low lows. If you've ever been pushed to the end of yourself, pushed to the limits, and you find that you have very little um, of like an ability to sort of, uh, you know, moderate yourself, then as a result, you're just kind of like losing it all the time. You know, you're feeling, he's ecstatic. He's ecstatic because there's a plant that's given him some shade. And uh, Jonah, God does this for Jonah because he wants him to experience something else. Something else that he has taken for granted as a part of his life, and it's this. Um, God gives him this plant because he wants him to experience his mercy. And the reason he wants him to experience this mercy of his is because Jonah has taken it for granted. Scripture tells us that we are deserving of death because of the sin that we commit in our lives. And that because of that, that any Uh, any good thing that God gives us, any good thing that God decides to give us as a people or as individuals is ultimately merciful on God's part. It's not deserved on our part. But it becomes so easy to just get used to thinking we deserve these things, right? These are things that are ours. I earned them. I worked for them. I'm a good enough person. Or for whatever reason, we don't see it after a while oftentimes as the mercy of God. We see it as something that we're entitled to. Jonah needed to experience the mercy of God in this really random 
but tangible way. Because there are so many huge ways that God shows his mercy. There are so many huge ways that God gives us things that we do not deserve, that we barely wrap our minds around. Any good thing that we have ultimately is something we don't really deserve, and God still gives us out of his mercy and his grace. But God decides in this instance, I'm going to do something so specific, and it's going to seem so random, but I'm going to do it because Jonah is being super dramatic right now, and he's clearly in a place where he's going to like really feel this. And I'm going to just show him how easy it is for me to just do something nice for him, to take care of him to provide for him. And that's exactly what he does. He grows this plant up, and it says that it makes Jonah so happy for whatever reason, because of where he's at. He's like the happiest guy in the world. God gives him something kind and thoughtful. This is like the sweetest, most thoughtful gift that you could give to Jonah, right? If someone's like, hey, Jonah's birthday's coming up, what would he like? It's like, you know, honestly, it sounds random, but a plant to cover him right now because he's just sitting out in the sun and he's really had a rough time, that would just be the most thoughtful thing ever, right? This is like the commercial for the love languages. This is like, man, God, you're the best gift giver. You give the most random, specific, personal things, right? If you've ever gotten a gift from someone that's like, crazy specific and personal, and you're like, wow, you really know me super well. God really knows Jonah. He knows that guy more than anything else. He just wants a nice plant to give him some shade. It'll make him so happy, he'll just be the happiest guy in the world. Man, God, you're like the best gift giver ever. That's the greatest. And he does that for Jonah. And then he does something super messed up, which is honestly kind of funny, because at this point, it's hard to have a lot of sympathy for Jonah because he's just being so ridiculous. And none of us would ever obviously do what Jonah's doing. That's sarcasm. Um, because when dawn comes up the next day, God appoints a worm that attacked the plant. I love to imagine how that goes, right? Like worm wakes up, God's like, worm, I've got a job for you, right? This story is all about me having jobs for weird people and things that are just strange. Uh, Worm, I've got a job for you, so listen up. I'd like for you to attack this plant with all that's in you, and I want this plant to wither away. God appoints a worm. It is, uh, you know, inspired to go and, and attack a gourd, a plant, and it withers away. Then the sun rises. So it's not, he doesn't just get rid of the plant. God doesn't just take away the plant. The sun beats down on the head of Jonah, or it said when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So not only does God remove this plant that he gave him, but he then causes like the circumstances around him to get even worse. His environment, it gets hotter the wind picks up, everything gets worse. So not only does God want Jonah to experience mercy, he wants him to experience his mercy in a tangible way, but then he goes a step further, and this is where things get so hard for Jonah. They get so painful. He also needed to experience life without that mercy. He needed to experience what it's like to be without the thing that God gives you that you don't deserve. It's so specific, and it seems so random and weird that it's a plant. But it's actually, because it's so specific to the circumstances that he is in right there in that moment, 
that he's finding himself taken to the end of himself, going, man, I really liked that plant, and God's taken it away from me. He needed to experience life without this mercy that he took for granted to realize something that he had still not ever realized as a prophet of God. Here's the thing about Jonah. He knows so much about God. What he says in the beginning of uh, of this chapter, uh, the way that he uh, describes God, is he says um, in in one of the first verses here, um, in verse 2, he says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He's quoting scripture here. He's quoting one of the greatest truths about God that the Israelite people knew. You are slow to anger, you are gracious, and you are abounding in steadfast love. God, it's because I knew this thing about you that I just knew you would do this thing for my enemies, and it's why I'm so upset. What are you talking about? How on earth do you teach someone something when they know everything? How does God teach Jonah something when he knows more truth about him and can spit it out to anybody who asks? What does a person do if they follow Jesus for 10, 15, 20, even even five years? If you follow Jesus for that long and you've read all this stuff in the Bible and you've heard sermons and you've been a part of small groups and all these things, at what point, after you learn these things and you get this stuff in your brain, how do you actually teach someone who knows that much stuff something new about God? Well, you see, the problem is that we can gain all the knowledge that we want. We can learn all of the words to all of the songs and we can learn how to answer all of the questions in any of the groups that we're in in the best way possible. We can do all of that stuff and still not actually see the truth of those things without God causing us to have to experience them ourselves. This is what a loving God does. He says, because I love you so much, and because I am a God who is relentless, I am a God who will not stop chasing after you. I'm not just a God who wants you to know a bunch of stuff. I don't want to leave you there in that. It's going to puff you up, it's going to make you arrogant, and you're not going to truly know me in the way I want my child to know me. No, I am a God who loves you enough and am relentless enough after you enough that I am going to not only let you know these things in your mind, but I'm going to cause you to have to learn what these things really mean. I want you to experience these things for yourself. It's so weird what happens in Jonah. But what I love about this book, what I love about this account of this prophet's life is, number one, he's supposed to know better, and he doesn't. But number two, the fact that the reason this is such a strange story is because God says, I'm going to be so personal and so specific in what you, Jonah, need in order to be able to experience me for real. You don't need more knowledge. You don't need more information. You don't need to even go and be a prophet to your own people. You're going to need some really crazy things to happen. 
so that you can actually experience the truth of these things that you think you know, which is every good thing that you've ever experienced is the mercy of God, and you don't deserve any of it. And that's not because you're not valuable and significant. That's not because I don't love you as your father. It's because of the sin that exists in your life that you don't deserve these good things I give you. So you could approach life in one of two ways. You could feel entitled, which is going to make you angry. It's going to make you resent, and it's going to make you bitter. It's going to make you need to be in control. It's going to make you eventually not grow in my likeness. Or you could be grateful. You can recognize that that these things are grace, that these things are my mercy to you in every little way and in any big way. And it gives you compassion for all of the people out there who also depend on my mercy. You have no enemies. The Ninevites are not your enemies anymore. The incredible thing about when Jesus talks to people about who their neighbor is, when he talks to people about who to forgive and how to forgive, is that Jesus doesn't come and teach us how to treat our enemies. Jesus comes to tell us that we have no enemies anymore. He comes to get rid of the concept of enemy. That no matter who someone is or what they've done in my life or how they might have hurt me, they're not my enemy. They're my brother. They're my neighbor, Jesus would say. These are hard things for us to know. But they're things that we have to know. God um, says to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for this plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Man, it's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, the idea that God would actually say, do you do well to be angry for this plant? And being like, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough that I could die. And God says to him, you pity this thing. You didn't grow it. You didn't make it happen. It just came into being in a night and it perished in a night. How quickly you get attached to the things that you have from me and how quickly you feel entitled to those things. God says, should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons? God is saying to Jonah something very simple. He's reminding him of something very simple. Saying it's so easy for you to grow attached to things, to think that you deserve things, to care about what you care about, what makes your life better. But it isn't because you're a compassionate person. It's not because you understand my mercy. It's just because you're a person who has something good and you don't want to lose it. There is no way that we, uh, there's no way that we can really ever want for others to experience the mercy of God without having experienced it ourselves. If I am changed by the grace of God, if I recognize just how much I have in him and in the gospel that I don't deserve, what that does to me is it changes the way that I see everyone around me and everything around me. 
It says this isn't a system based on the good people and the bad people. This isn't about living a certain way and deserving something from God. This is about God's grace. We can't forgive others who wrong us if we have never experienced God's forgiveness. You can try your whole life and be a forgiving person, but you will not be able to truly forgive others unless you have been forgiven and you've experienced it, what it's like to be forgiven. And I don't think that we can want for God's mercy and grace for others if we haven't experienced it ourselves. And what I'm saying that we see in Jonah is that we, a lot of people haven't experienced God's mercy in the way that we should have. We haven't experienced forgiveness in the way that we should have. And because of that, because we haven't, we don't want it for others. I love a God who is so relentless in his love for us that he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase after you and I'm going to choose to do things in your life that are so strangely specific. I'm going to choose to do things in your life that I wouldn't do in this person's life or in this person's life. And I get that in the midst of that thing, you might look at me and you might say, God, you are cruel. God, you are not loving. God, uh, why would you pick this thing, allow this thing to happen, break down this thing? Why would you not provide this thing? Why would their life look that way and my life looks this way? And we know from the truth of his word, from the lives of the saints that have lived before us, we know that God does these things because he loves us. Because he wants us to see those things in our lives that are idols, that are causing us to be robbed of joy and hope and peace, to be filled instead with anger. Because he wants us to be people who experience his mercy in the greatest way possible. And it's because he loves us so much that he does these really specific things in our lives. And because of that, my story is not your story, which is not your neighbor's story, which is not your father's story, which is not your friend's story. Our stories are all different. They're different because God has shown up in different ways, specific to each one of us. And I have talked to so many of you over the last month who have said that since we've been in Jonah, it's caused me to start to see something that I hadn't necessarily seen before, which is either God is chasing me down. God is doing things in my life to show me something. God is loving me enough to not just let me sit there with a head full of knowledge with the pride of being a part of a group of people for a long time. But he loves me enough to not leave me there, but instead to say, I'm going to change you and shape you into somebody who's truly like Christ. That is what it means to be loved by a God who is relentless. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, we would prefer to be left alone most of the time. We would prefer if you would leave us where we are, and not choose to love us enough to cause us to experience things that hurt, that pull the rug out from under us, that cause us to feel anger, and that expose the idols that we have in our hearts, Lord. But you are not a God who does that. You are not a father who does that. You are a father who loves his children so much that you are willing to do those things in our lives, God. Would you help us to not make the incredibly, incredibly grave mistake of thinking that life is hard and things are confusing because you don't love us? Would you help us not to make that mistake? Help us not to make the mistake of thinking 
the reason things are like this must be because God doesn't love me. And would you help us to know instead the truth that the reason things are like this is because God does love me. That you tell us that you work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that is us, Lord. Would you give us confidence in that, God? Would you meet us in this place, however hard of a place it is to be, because you don't want us to walk through these things alone, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.